We've already shared that as I worked on the message this week, I've moved from one text to three. You've heard one of them. Psalm 43 that starts with a plaintive cry, Why are you cast down on my soul? Let's look at Romans 5. We'll just read parts of verse 2 through verse 4. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only that, but we also glory in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And one more text, John 16, in verse 21 through 22. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice in your joy. No one can take from you. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Last Sunday evening, this sanctuary and this stage was full with not only sounds, but sights of the Nativity. Mary and Joseph were sitting right there. They were surrounded by angels and shepherds, and of course, last but not least, the three wise men. I wonder what that scene not only would look like, but what it would have been like if Jesus had been visited not just by three wise men, but by three wise women. The answer came to me. They would have asked for directions and arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, then cleaned up the stable, made a casserole, and brought disposable diapers as gifts. Well, we look this year at Advent peace and love and hope. Today we look at the theme of joy. Over our doorway, through which every one of you is invited to walk this afternoon, is one of the pride of Stephanie's and my Christmas season. Seven years ago or so, early in our time here at TBC, Nancy McLennan gave actuality to Stephanie's vision of having large, white, illuminated letters, J-O-Y, as the primary, and I'm thankful, almost the only exterior decoration at uh, the Schaus House, joy, illuminated. Thanks to Nancy for making that vision a reality. We rejoice every time we see it and drive up. Beth shared with us during her prayer last week that Christmas is often a difficult season for many. Expectations for the season are so high, and sometimes our reality and disappointments are so great. I hope this season has not been that way for you. But if it has been, know that the Bible is nothing if not realistic about the way that joy can and regularly does coexist with sorrow. 
This is clearly taught all the way through the Bible, and it is taught in each of the three verses we have heard from this morning. First Romans 5.3 reads, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. The reason we can have joy in the midst of sad times or sufferings is because of hope. You've all heard someplace or other, I know, that the opposite of love is not anger. It is indifference. So in that same vein, the opposite of joy is not sorrow. It is despair. It is hopelessness. Hope is the ability to say, no matter what I endure, no matter what I'm walking through, this is not the end. It is the ability to live in the truth of that great text, my Favorite text in the face of evil from Hebrews, we do not yet see all things subject to him, but we do see Jesus. The Bible constantly shows us that joy can and does overlap with sorrow. Listen to the text you've just heard from John 16. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. When a child comes, pain is overwhelmed by joy. I'm not an expert in this subject, and I imagine neither is uh, John. But uh, we do have the Holy Spirit to inform us, and from this text... It seems to say that even after the birth is over, pain does not disappear. But there is an overwhelming rise in joy. We make a tremendous mistake if we come to God and think that the primary reason we come to him is so that all our sorrows can be dispelled. We come to him because we are at enmity with him. Back in the days of... Soon after my sister's traumatic brain injury, and when I still asked her about the chronic pain with which she was left before she educated me that she should, I should let her speak to me about it, and only then uh, does she want to talk about it. But back in those days, I asked uh, what her pain level was on a scale between 1 and 10, and My sister, who does not complain about pain, who never brings it up, seldom brings it up to me, said, well, it's 11. And I said, sister, that's what I would say if I felt like my flesh was burning. And she says, that's what it feels like. But my sister regularly evidences a joy that comes to overwhelm that pain, a joy in family, a joy in her grandchildren, Not to be trivial about it, but a joy in BBC murder mysteries and the TV drama Castle. And of course, the soon-to-be fifth series of the BBC soap opera Downton Abbey. Christmas hope wouldn't be complete for me unless I mentioned that somewhere. And joy in Christ. If our goal is to be Christians, little Christs, We need to remember he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We're told again in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He had a joy that overwhelmed suffering, but it overlapped with intense suffering and sorrow. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says Christians are not to grieve as those who have no hope. 
He does not say not to grieve, but he says we are to rub hope into our grief like we rub salt into meat to preserve it. The promise of the gospel is not that we give ourselves to Christ, our pains and sorrows will go away. We are not just sick people who need a comfortable remedy. We are sinners who need forgiveness. We are rebels against God who need to lay down our arms. Nowhere in the Bible is there a promise that he simply comes to alleviate our suffering. We don't have heat on at the Shouse House in the evening because the blast of air of the furnace is going on and off at night. Wake up sleepers in the home. But surely Christmas joy is something like the blast of a furnace which comes to overwhelm the cold. As sorrows come into the heart of the Christian, it invites us to get closer to Christ. It helps us dig down deeper into Him. And joys can kick in like a furnace which warm the sorrows like the cold. Joy and sorrow can coexist. Second Corinthians 6.10 perhaps puts it best of all, full of sorrow, yet always rejoicing. Now, if joys and sorrows coexist, their joy is also central to the Christian life. Do you remember Jesus' very first miracle? He didn't raise the dead. He didn't heal the sick. At a wedding, he turned water into wine. The first sign, the first symbol of what his coming brings was a sign of celebration. It is a sign of joy. Joy is contagious in the Christian life for at least two reasons. First of all, it is an attribute of God himself. It's what theologians would call a communicable attribute. If your spouse or someone who is close to you has a disease or an illness, you are likely to get it because there is intimacy between you. It is a communicable attribute. And so God, the living God of the universe is a God of love and peace and hope and faithfulness and of joy. To rub our lives close to that God is to have that attribute communicated to us. Joy is also central to the Christian life because it is the very heart of the gospel itself. You, most of you have been in church long enough to know that translation is good news, but I, for these purposes, love the King James translation better. It is glad tidings. It is glad news. It is joyful facts. To have the gospel... Not just to be close to God, but to understand the good news, to entertain it, is to have glad tidings in your life. Sorrow is a temporary condition of the Christian life. Joy is permanent. Well, what strategies are there for incorporating this joy, not just of the season, but of the character of God himself into our life, for that I want to turn to the psalm we heard at the outset of worship, Psalm 43. The psalmist cries out in verse 5, Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in 
tumult about me. And in verses 3 or 4, he gives his strategies, his remedies, his ways out. The first thing he does is pray. He lifts up his countenance for God. He says, direct me, God. Show me your, your ways. He prays that he might have a guidance out. And the second thing he does uh, is to preach to himself. I guess contemporary psychology would call that self-talk. Why preach to yourself? He rehearses the gospel. He rehearses the good news. What God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. One of my dear friends, Clive Havard in Wales, many of you know, passed away just a few days ago. He was a devotee, really a disciple of David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, who was one of the great preachers of the 20th century, an MD first, and, but then was called to a preaching ministry. And In one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' great books, Spiritual Depression, I didn't have time to look it up again this week, but he makes this point. Perhaps the most important preaching we do is not that which we sit under, but that which we say and give to ourselves. We should pray to God, and then we should rehearse by preaching to ourselves the good news of the gospel. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, the harp, O God, my God. Joy is the goal of our living. J.R.R. Tolkien, in uh, one of the most amazing essays I have ever read, I've, I've shared it with you at least two times before, one rather recently. Um, this Thursday, we had a get-together of uh, some of the seniors in the church, and the, one of the uh, activities was to remember one of our favorite Christmas memories, and mine was my father sitting at table telling stories. And, of course, his best stories were often retold and familiar, and he would introduce them by saying, if you've already heard this, don't tell me, because I'd like to hear it again myself. So I've recently shared with you J.R.R. Tolkien's great essay on fairy tales, but it, it deserves being rehearsed. He says that the basic idea of fairy tales at their best, and the very best stories which encourage us, is that into our doom and darkness, some reversal comes, some unexpected hero, some shining prince or princess who reverses our fate, A hero shows up. Cleaning up for the open house today, uh, I came across a gift that Jeff and Laura Church gave me some time ago. This was the myth of my childhood, not Spider-Man, not the Incredible Hulk. It might be a little bit vanilla, but it's the great superhero, Superman. So it's a 1973 version, long after I had stopped reading these. But it was a treasure to find again. These kinds of stories, Tolkien says, are important because they all give voice to the great underlying story of the gospel that we ache for, the great true story where myth has broken into history. All the poems, all the stories, all the novels, 
all the Superman comic books, all the Indiana Jones movies. He says, these are the story of Christmas. The only story that could give you pure, utter, everlasting joy. Again, even last week I shared with you that one of the joys of this Advent season for Stephanie and me is working through Anne Voskamp's recent Advent book, Unwrapping the Greatest Gift. She goes through many of the Bible stories. This week, one of them was on Habakkuk, who sits on the watchtower, waiting and hoping. And this is just a small portion of Voskamp's summary of the message of Habakkuk. She writes, Just like the cold can move you closer to the fire, hard times can move you closer to God. And he warms you with joy. Habakkuk shouted it from the top of the watchtower, I will trust you, God, and I will watch, and I will wait. I will make joy, find joy, take joy, see joy. Rejoice and rejoice again. She spells it the second time, R-E hyphen J-O-Y-S. And rejoice and rejoice again. Then Habakkuk sang this song. And this is Voskamp's uh, loose translation of scripture itself. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, even though there are hard things, Even though I sometimes fail, I will be joyful in God. He saves us from the sadness and darkness and ourselves. Every joy that does not have God as its central joy is a hollow joy. And is like a bubble that will burst and will fail us. C.S. Lewis writes, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I have in my ministry, I've been very helped by John Piper, I don't know what he would say at this point, but it would, I think it would be something like this. It, it would be appropriate to say we were made for joy. It would be appropriate to say we are made to praise God with our whole hearts and our whole beings and our whole self. But best of all, most fully to say it would be we were made to enjoy God with an overflowing praise. Let it be so for each of us, this Advent season and every season. Living in Holy God, we rejoice that you have not left us alone or lonely or overwhelmed by despair or darkness, but you have come to us in Christ to take us to a new place and a new way and to take us to you. For that we are forever grateful forever thankful, and forever joyful. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.